Picture this, if you will. You're a primary care physician seeing a 49-year-old female with a history of migraines, fibromyalgia, and sleep apnea for a routine visit. Despite her treatment for fibromyalgia, she states that over the past year, her chronic pain has become difficult to manage. I know my trigger points, she says, and I'm hurting in places I don't normally hurt. And these headaches are becoming just unbearable. She complains that her neurologist doesn't take her seriously and just refills her migraine medications whenever she needs them. You notice her son in the room, and she mentions that she hasn't felt comfortable driving since crashing twice while making lane changes on the freeway. On a hunch, you test your patient's visual fields and find that she is unable to see her fingers move lateral to the midline of her field of vision. What do you suspect is causing your patient's symptoms? And how will you definitively diagnose the problem? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from endocrinology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Explain the physiological roles of growth hormone and IGF-1. 2. Describe the etiology, clinical presentation, diagnosis, and treatment of growth hormone deficiency. And 3. Describe the etiology, clinical presentation, diagnosis, and treatment of growth hormone excess. Part 1. What are the roles of growth hormone and IGF-1? Growth hormone, also known as somatotropin, or simply GH, is a hormone that plays a vital role in regulating the growth of muscle and bone tissues, and this is especially true in children and teens. While it does affect these tissues on its own, GH also recruits an important mediator hormone from the liver called insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1, to stimulate the growth of bones and muscles. Together, they stimulate linear bone growth at the epiphyseal plates during childhood, making them responsible for most of the height gained by children as they age. They increase bone mineralization, which improves bone density and strength. Finally, GH and IGF-1 stimulates muscles to hypertrophy. Basically, growth hormone is every orthopedic surgeon's dream come true. But building all that muscle and bone requires ATP to power their growth, so GH and IGF-1 also increase serum glucose and free fatty acid concentrations in the serum to provide the catabolic fuel that generates the ATP. They stimulate hepatic gluconeogenesis and antagonize the action of insulin, making growth hormone one of those several diabetogenic hormones. GH and IGF-1 also increase lipolysis and lipid oxidation while increasing protein synthesis. Burning fat and building muscle. You can see why synthetic growth hormone is so popular amongst bodybuilders. But, as we'll mention later, while skeletal muscle hypertrophy is one of the most notable effects, growth hormone and IGF-1 also cause hypertrophy of almost all of the other internal organs as well. Except, hilariously enough, the brain. Food for thought, bodybuilders. Alright, pop quiz time. Which hormone works with GH to promote normal bone growth and tissue development? And the answer is insulin-like growth factor, or IGF-1. Part 2. What is growth hormone deficiency? Growth hormone deficiency can either be congenital, like an inherited GH synthesis or receptor defect, or acquired, like with panhypopituitarism. Now, adult-onset GH deficiency is a lot more rare, with an incidence of about 1 in 100,000. And kind of like I alluded to, it's mostly due to pituitary tumors that cause deficiency in other pituitary hormones as well. The incidence in children is about 1 in 3,000 to 5,000, and in most cases, the specific etiology is never actually identified. 
The clinical presentation depends on the age at which GH deficiency becomes functionally significant, and this can be categorized roughly as neonatal, childhood, and adult-onset presentations. Diagnosis of GH deficiency in a neonate is pretty rare, since true congenital GH deficiency is rare, and the newborn hasn't yet had time to exhibit the most obvious signs of a lack of linear bone growth. But sometimes, GH deficiency coincides with other hormone deficiencies that do cause clinical abnormalities in neonates, such as ACTH or gonadotropin deficiencies. When a newborn is found to have hypoglycemia, hypokalemia, or ambiguous genitalia, this usually triggers a full endocrine workup that uncovers the comorbid GH deficiency as well. But GH deficiency is most commonly diagnosed in childhood, since their growth is usually carefully monitored by parents and medical professionals. Since GH is responsible for linear bone growth, children with GH deficiency will fall off their growth curves and become more and more noticeably shorter compared to their peers. But since it's only their linear growth that's decreased, their weight-to-height ratios will be increased. Their arms and legs will be disproportionately short compared to the trunk, and their facial features may be described as doll-like or infantile. The typical body habitus of these patients is sometimes referred to as pituitary dwarfism. The bone age, as seen on radiography, is delayed, and patients may also have delayed motor developmental milestones since GH is also responsible for muscle growth. Finally, adult-onset GH deficiency is usually asymptomatic, since adults have already completed their linear bone growth, and like newborns, these patients are instead diagnosed as part of a workup for generalized pituitary insufficiency. If symptoms are present, they're generally pretty nonspecific, and may include decreased muscle mass, increased fat mass, decreased bone mineral density, and an increased rate of fractures. But these changes are also pretty common effects of normal aging, so it's difficult to clinically distinguish features of GH deficiency from normal age-related changes. Knowledge check, y'all. What is the major clinical sign of GH deficiency in children? The most important clinical finding of GH deficiency in children is failure to follow their normal growth curve, eventually resulting in short stature. Now let's talk pathophysiology. In newborns, there are rare causes of deficiency in GH production, as well as genetic insensitivity to GH due to a mutation in the GH receptor. And the best-known receptor deficiency is an autosomal recessive disorder called Laron syndrome. And this presents not only with growth failure, but also a small head circumference, a prominent forehead, saddle nose deformity, and small genitalia. These individuals may develop hyperlipidemia and hypoglycemia due to the effects of low GH on lipid and carbohydrate catabolism. Congenital and childhood GH deficiency may also be due to Prader-Willi syndrome, in which a genetic excess of ghrelin inhibits GH synthesis. Now, these patients will also have short stature, but because the high ghrelin levels cause an insatiable appetite, they're characteristically much more obese than children with Laron syndrome. But in both children and adults, GH deficiency is most often idiopathic. Because of the pituitary's role in GH secretion and its interregulation with other endocrine axes, however, there are several well-documented causes. These include multiple genetic disorders and de novo mutations, chronic kidney disease, and autoimmune damage, as well as anything that globally damages the pituitary, like tumors, trauma, or radiation. So, with so many potential causes and nonspecific presentations, making the diagnosis of GH deficiency can be tricky, but in general, it also varies depending on the patient's age. 
In newborns, hypoglycemia and small or ambiguous genitalia should trigger a full endocrine workup that includes growth hormone testing. Other presentations that should raise suspicion for growth hormone deficiency are prolonged jaundice and midline craniofacial abnormalities. In children, since the hallmark of GH deficiency is a failure of long bone growth, height under three standard deviations below the mean height for a child's age should trigger testing for GH deficiency. But despite being the sine qua non of GH deficiency, there are a ton of other conditions that can cause growth failure. So, in addition to testing for GH deficiency, pediatricians will usually simultaneously evaluate for other causes like chronic infections, hypothyroidism, Turner syndrome, and bone disorders, many of which are much more common than GH deficiency. Now, the diagnostic workup for GH deficiency involves measuring serum IGF-1 levels and evaluating the bone age. And if you're scratching your head and wondering, why IGF-1 argin? Why not GH itself? Well, it's because GH levels are pulsatile and vary widely throughout the day. IGF-1 levels, on the other hand, remain relatively constant and so serve as an index of GH secretion. Furthermore, since the secretion of IGF-1 depends on both the presence of GH and the functioning receptor, IGF-1 levels will be decreased in patients with GH deficiency caused by hyposecretion, as in pituitary insufficiency, and in cases of GH receptor dysfunction, as in Laron syndrome. Now, bone age is a measure of skeletal maturity estimated by using an x-ray of the hand. Pediatricians are generally pretty familiar with this one, and maybe you are too if you have kids. You know how in young babies, a lot of the skeleton isn't actually made up of hard mineralized bone, but rather bendy cartilage that doesn't show up on x-ray? Well, as kids get older, more and more of that cartilage gets replaced by bone. Until as a teenager, the only bits of cartilage left are at the growth plates, which appear as gaps between the end caps of the bone and the shaft in the middle, or the epiphysis and diaphysis, to be precise. And once even that growth plate cartilage mineralizes, well, that means you're done growing. No mas! Though, to be nice to the shorter children, we call that skeletal maturity. <laughs> anyway, different bones and growth plates mineralize at different times, and the hand provides some good milestones for assessing how close a child is to skeletal maturity. And that's helpful, because some kids hit their growth spurts at different times. A late bloomer, for example, might be short for his age one year, when most of his peers are hitting their growth spurts. But an assessment of bone age would determine that his skeleton is still slightly immature compared to his actual chronological age, and that would suggest that he still has some growing to do. Now, in patients with growth hormone deficiency, however, the height will be significantly below average, and the skeletal maturation will also be markedly delayed, more so than you'd expect in your average late bloomer. In uncertain cases, IGF binding protein, or IGF-BP3 levels, can also be measured. Like IGF-1, IGF-BP3 production is stimulated by GH. So, what would you expect the levels to be in a patient with GH deficiency? IGF-BP3 deficiency will be decreased in growth hormone deficiency. A GH stimulation test can also be performed. Since hypoglycemia triggers compensatory production of GH, you can induce hypoglycemia by injecting a child with insulin to see if growth hormone levels increase like you'd expect. Now, maybe some of you can see why maybe this isn't the safest option. Actually, since you can legit kill someone like this, it's not really used very often, and safer stimulation tests are usually less sensitive and less specific. Once the diagnosis of GH deficiency is confirmed, well, you're not done yet. 
I mean, I did tell you that it's usually idiopathic, but you have to at least try to find out why. Pituitary MRI should be performed to evaluate for pituitary masses or morphologic abnormalities in the pituitary or the infundibulum immediately above it. And in order to get adequate resolution, the MRI needs to be specifically obtained with thin sections through the cella tersica, the bony cradle in the skull base in which the pituitary sits. In adults, like I mentioned, diagnosing acquired GH deficiency is tricky. Like I mentioned, the nonspecific symptoms in adults, like muscle loss or fat gain or bone density loss, are more often due to other very common conditions, like osteoporosis or low testosterone or just plain old aging. Therefore, the evaluation for GH deficiency should only be undertaken when the pretest probability is high to begin with, such as those with known hypothalamic or pituitary disorders. All right, knowledge check time. What is the advantage of testing for IGF-1 instead of GH? The advantage to testing for IGF-1 is that GH secretion is pulsatile throughout the day, and levels of IGF-1 are more consistently detectable. Now, regarding treatment, well, if the cause of GH deficiency is underproduction of GH, well, then it only makes sense that the treatment is recombinant human growth hormone injections. And these are required as early as possible to maintain a normal rate of linear bone growth in children and neonates. This highlights the importance of early diagnosis, because the more mature a skeleton becomes, the less chance a child has to grow normally. GH injections are continued until the growth plates are nearly closed, because at this point, linear growth is nearly complete. Treatments for adults with GH deficiency is the same, and the endpoint is the lab-identified growth hormone sufficiency. Adults will benefit from increased muscle mass and decreased body fat, but once the epiphyseal plates close, they will not benefit from linear bone growth. And it's important to note that many patients who are GH deficient as children will become GH sufficient as adults, so it's important to reassess GH and IGF-1 levels after the epiphyseal plates close, rather than just keep treating. Now, in the case of Laurent syndrome, because it's caused by GH receptor insensitivity, unfortunately, recombinant GH injections simply won't work. The condition is managed medically with recombinant IGF-1 injections, which targets different functioning receptors, but the efficacy isn't quite the same as recombinant GH would be in GH-deficient patients. Side effects of recombinant GH injections most notably include hyperglycemia, since GH is diabetogenic and induces insulin resistance. This means that in patients with diabetes, you got to monitor them carefully if you're going to give GH at all. GH is generally contraindicated in patients with cancer because of concerns about stimulating tumor growth, but this concern is a lot more theoretical than evidence-based. Additionally, administration of synthetic GH can cause a range of musculoskeletal problems, most commonly back pain and arthralgias. GH can cause peripheral edema in the distal extremities, and the unusual distribution of edema beneath the flexor retinaculum can lead to carpal tunnel syndrome. Part 3. What is growth hormone excess? Growth hormone excess is usually due to hypersecreting pituitary tumors, and it's even more rare than growth hormone deficiency. Now, that might not be totally intuitive, since you can probably think of a couple famous celebrities with GH excess, like Andre the Giant but very few with GH deficiency. What can I say? Patients with GH excess are usually a lot more noticeable, and several of them have made their size a marketable asset. 
Now, Andre the Giant is an example of someone whose growth hormone excess began in childhood, before fusion of the epiphyseal growth plates. These patients experience much greater linear bone growth, leading to a condition of great height called, and I still can't believe they still use this term, gigantism. (laughs) Seriously, it's like these names are thought of by carnies instead of endocrinologists. And unlike kids with short stature, hardly anybody with tall stature complains about it. But around puberty, during the growth spurts, the effects of excess growth hormone make it a lot more obvious that the kid has an actual endocrine disorder instead of being just vertically gifted. So, while GH deficiency is usually diagnosed earlier in childhood, GH excess is typically diagnosed around puberty. Now, when GH excess occurs in adults, after the epiphyseal plates have closed, the condition of GH excess is called acromegaly, and this has a very different clinical presentation. The long bones, of course, don't grow any further, but certain bones will thicken, and patients develop soft tissue swelling in other parts of the body. The bones of the forehead and jaw thicken most noticeably, leading to a very characteristic facial appearance with widening spaces between the teeth. Edema of the upper airway and tongue cause the voice to become deep and thick-sounding, and for patients to develop obstructive sleep apnea and snoring. The hands and feet often become enlarged, which gives the condition the name acromegaly. These patients will also often experience joint pain and muscle fatigue from the effects of excess growth hormone on the musculoskeletal system. But because these changes are gradual, patients with adult-onset GH excess often don't notice them until they, for example, need a larger hat or larger shoes, or when they compare their appearance with old pictures. Of note, children with untreated gigantism will most likely develop the physical features of acromegaly as well if the GH excess continues into adulthood, including facial changes and increased hand size. In both adult and pediatric patients, GH excess is usually due to pituitary adenomas, with hyperplasia of the somatotroph cells that make the hormone. Because of this, patients may also present with symptoms of a pituitary mass, like headaches or bitemporal hemianopsia from compression of the optic chiasm. And because a pituitary mass may secrete other pituitary hormones as well, patients may present with symptoms of hyperprolactinemia, like galactorrhea or infertility, or Cushing syndrome, from the increased ACTH. Alright, pop quiz time. What is the most common cause of growth hormone excess? The most common cause is a GH-secreting adenoma of the pituitary gland. So, we talked a lot about the physical appearance of GH excess, but there are a number of other medically relevant complications as well. As we mentioned before, GH is a diabetogenic hormone, and the stimulation of lipolysis increases serum lipid concentrations, and that can lead to accelerated atherosclerosis and the development of heart disease. Other complications may include hypertension, suppression of sex steroids, carpal tunnel syndrome, and, oddly enough, an increased risk of colorectal cancer. Diagnosis in children is complicated by the fact that there are many other more common causes of excessive growth, so these causes of increased height should also be ruled out as you evaluate the patient. In adults, it can take many years for the hormone excess to cause clinical findings, but once suspected, the diagnosis is made with blood tests and imaging. As with the GH deficiency, testing for an increased serum level of IGF-1 is the best test, but there are a number of false positives. So, unlike with GH deficiency, if the level of IGF-1 is elevated, a GH suppression test is indicated to confirm the results. In this test, a substance that normally suppresses GH, 
typically glucose, is given to the patients, and levels of GH are measured. If GH levels remain high, then the diagnosis of GH excess can be made. Finally, once GH excess is diagnosed, a pituitary MRI should definitely be performed to look for a GH-secreting pituitary adenoma, since this is, of course, the most common cause of GH excess. Now let's talk treatment. First-line treatment for a GH-secreting pituitary adenoma is surgical resection of said adenoma. You know the old surgical adage, when in doubt, cut it out. Pharmacologic agents and radiation may also be indicated for either mild IGF-1 elevation or in patients who refuse or simply cannot undergo surgery. Octreotide is a somatostatin analog that can be given to suppress GH secretion from the pituitary in both children and adults. Other options are the dopamine agonist cabergoline or the selective GH receptor antagonist pegvizimant. And that's a wrap! Let's see what you learned about abnormalities in growth hormone. First, can you briefly describe the main effects of growth hormone? The primary effect of GH is to stimulate the growth of bones and muscles, especially linear bone growth in children. Second, can you contrast the most common etiology of GH deficiency with that of GH excess? Most of the time, GH excess is caused by a hypersecreting pituitary tumor, whereas GH deficiency is usually idiopathic and not attributable to a specific cause. Third, can you contrast the clinical presentation of GH abnormalities in children and adults? GH deficiency and excess are most notable in childhood as a failure to grow at the rate of their peers in the case of GH deficiency and an excessive growth in puberty in the case of GH excess. Adult onset GH abnormalities don't affect height but can affect the musculoskeletal system, usually in fairly nonspecific ways. Adults with GH deficiency can have decreased muscle and bone mass and higher body fat, whereas adults with GH excess can develop the clinical appearance of acromegaly with bony enlargement of the brow and mandible and soft tissue swelling of the hands, feet, vocal cords, and tongue. Finally, can you describe the workup required to definitively diagnose GH deficiency or excess? The lab test of choice for abnormal levels of GH is not actually to measure the serum GH itself, but rather its mediator, IGF-1, which maintains much more consistent and measurable levels than GH itself. Low IGF-BP3 levels are also used to diagnose GH deficiency, and a bone age assessment can be used to identify patients with GH deficiency, since their failure to grow is often accompanied by skeletal immaturity. A follow-up GH stimulation test can help clarify equivocal results in the workup of GH deficiency, or a GH suppression test for the workup of GH excess. Once an abnormality in GH is detected, a pituitary MRI is almost always indicated to evaluate for either pituitary masses or morphologic abnormalities. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 49-year-old patient with chronic fibromyalgia, migraines, and sleep apnea complains of worsening myalgias, arthralgias, and headache. On physical exam, you notice that she's unable to see lateral to the midline of her field of vision. What do you suspect is causing her symptoms? 
And how will you definitively diagnose the problem? While her symptoms are nonspecific and potentially attributable to her chronic pain conditions, the presence of a visual field deficit, or bitemporal hemianopsia, is concerning, especially in the context of a worsening headache. You ask her some more questions and find out that not only has she had to get her rings resized, she's also looking into adult braces ever since her teeth started to appear oddly spaced from each other. Acquired growth hormone excess is rare, but her clinical picture is compelling enough for you to order an IGF-1 level, which comes back abnormally elevated. You tell the patient that you'll be ordering an MRI of the brain to look for a tumor in her pituitary gland. I think that may be what's causing your symptoms, you say, including the headache and the visual problems. Your patient almost cries with relief, hearing that there's a potentially treatable medical cause of her problems. Nobody takes me seriously, she exclaims. They just always write off my problems as fibromyalgia or migraines. We don't have a diagnosis yet, you say cautiously, but you're right. We should always be doing our due diligence to evaluate new complaints in patients who have chronic pain, because having chronic problems doesn't mean you can't develop other problems as well. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 